Wetland one more time set. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. The fastball swung on and hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get off the right red and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10 to 6. I don't believe it. atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Holly's Island, South Carolina. This is Backwards K. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. I'm your host, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And I want to welcome you to the world premiere debut a backwards cat, where we collect ball players and their stories. And this is like a passion project for me. Uh, when I was a kid, all I did was eat, drink, and breathe baseball. And I'm talking about before the days of the internet, which really does feel so long ago. And before apps and the MLB Network, and even before ESPN, yes, I'm I'm dating myself here, uh, I am that old. <laughs> but before all that, I used to read everything, uh, from the back of baseball cards, to newspapers, to Sports Illustrated, that I was still from the dentist's office. I mean, looking back now, that was the hook. All the characters, the personalities, the stories. Oh my God, the stories, right? So I'm thinking about what's my next podcast endeavor here, and it hit me. It hit me like I was a bird and the big unit was on the mound pitching. You know what I'm saying? I thought to myself, somebody really needs to leave a record of some of this stuff. I mean, when I leave here, I want baseball to grow beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And sometimes I worry about the future of baseball. I mean, I love it that much. I feel like it's given so much to me. And if I can light something inside one person to either bring back that renewal of love or maybe even spark the interest of some kid somewhere. I feel like I will have done my job. I'm giving something back to the sport that's given me so much in my life. So, with that in mind, I'm not going to go on too long about this. I'm going to kick it off. Once again, this is Backwards K, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And this is episode number one. It's going to be coming out every Tuesday. It will be available on all podcast platforms. If you could go ahead and subscribe and leave me a rating, a comment, rate me as you see fit, I would certainly appreciate that because I'd love to see this grow. And I think baseball fans out there, when I was a kid, I had a special connection to baseball. And it was knowing all these stories and how the game came to me, how it came to be. When I was born, what led up to it? So, 
While I'm thinking here, brainstorming about this new podcast experience, some of you know me from the JRSE, the Jake Robinson Sports Experience. This is a lot different than that. I'm tired of the mundane, who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, who doesn't. You know, the Astros cheating scare. I'm done with it. I feel like the world is so divided right now. And your voice just gets lost in the, in the sea of, of millions of other people. Now, I want to bring something back that brings us all together. And what brings us all together, if you love this game, is the stories of the game. So, I wanted to start this pot off right. The first person had to be special. It had to have universal appeal. And it was pretty much a no-brainer. Everybody loves Roberto. How can you not? He is a man who risked everything to give everything. This is a man who literally single-handedly destroyed my team in the World Series. And even I love Roberto Clemente. So, look. Let's huddle up around the old podcast machine here. And talk about the great one. The iconic Roberto Clemente, here on Backwards K. Now, Roberto Enrique Clemente Walker was born April 18, 1934, in the barrio of San Antonio in Carolina, Puerto Rico. He was the youngest of seven kids. His father, Melkor, was a foreman for a local sugarcane plantation. And at a very young age, he instilled a strong work ethic in young Roberto. So at the age of eight, Roberto begins working for not only his father, but he would also wake up early in the morning and haul milk throughout the barrio. And he would haul the milk in the morning, work with his father during the day, loading and unloading trucks. Maybe he had school, he'd go to school. And then he'd come home and he'd deliver milk for dinner. And you might be asking yourself, why is an eight-year-old driven by this? Well, I'm going to tell you why I was driven by this. He noticed a bicycle that he wanted. And it cost $27. And each day, the boy was given two cents for his wages. A penny in the morning and the penny in the evening. You know that kid saved every single penny he made for three years to get that bike. And obviously, you're seeing a pattern here where the young Roberto is goal-driven and solutions-oriented. As a kid, Roberto was described as pensive, a kid who analyzed everything he did. And his favorite word when he was a kid was, Momento, which is Spanish for moment. I need a moment to process what you just told me. Momento, momento. He said it so much that his siblings and his friends called Moment for short. And that would be a nickname that stuck with him in his inner circle for the rest of his life. At eight years old, he's learning how to work. He's learning the value of money and what it takes to get money. 
and at eight years old, something else happened that changed that kid's future forever. The Negro League baseball teams, as well as a few white major leaguers, they would come to the island to play in the offseason. And one day, while trying to figure out how to get in the stadium with no money, he happened to meet Negro League's future Hall of Famer, Giants great, Monty Irvin. And Irvin would give Robbie gloves and balls and even better, seats to the game. And Roberto would never forget Irvin's kindness. And he pretty much vowed that if he ever made it to be a pro baseball player, he would treat people the same way. He was very impressed by Monty. And Monty never saw Roberto play baseball as a kid. But every time he was in Carolina, Puerto Rico, he was right there waiting for Monty. And they became very good friends at a young age. So by 12, 13 years old, the boy is transforming into this strong athletic teen from the years of the hard work hauling sugarcane and milk. And it wasn't always a given that baseball would necessarily be Roberto's path. Even though in Roberto's mind, it was always baseball. But he was a track and field star. He ran the 440 meters, and he was a legitimate Olympic hopeful, hopeful for the island of Puerto Rico. He was also a phenomenal javelin thrower. He had these long fingers and iron locks for wrist. And his skill in throwing the javelin would factor into his skill sets during his Major League Baseball career. But we'll touch on that in a little bit. But like I said, Roberto's first love was baseball and softball. And he was convinced, as long as he could remember, that God had made him to be one thing. And that was a baseball player. Now, Clemente and his baseball crazy friends... They would use anything and everything they could find to play. Broomsticks for bats, wound-up strings, bottle caps, uh, empty tin cans for balls, anything they could find. Milk cartons for gloves. They're very resourceful to play this game. And at the age of 16, while playing shortstop for Celo Rojo, he was asked to join the prestigious Puerto Rican amateur baseball team, Ferdinand Yuncos. And as far as amateur baseball in Puerto Rico during the 1940s is concerned, Yuncos was top shelf liquor, baby. The Yankees of Puerto Rican amateur baseball. Two years later, at the age of 18, 1952, Roberto signs a pro contract with Congrejos de Santorsi for $40 a week. Congrejos is crab, so they're like the Santorsi crabbers. And within two months of signing with Santorsi, the Dodgers sent scout Al Campanis to scout him. Campanis would later recall, how Clemente stood out and above the other 70-plus players. He gave them A-pluses and A's all across the board. I mean, literally, literally across the board. 
in hitting, fielding, arm, running, power, speed, reactions, accuracy. 15 months later, February 19th, 1954, the Brooklyn Dodgers drafted Clemente, signed him for $4,000, and sent him to the farm team in Montreal. Now, this is what I like to call one of those butterfly effect moments. I know many people didn't realize that Roberto was not originally drafted by the Pirates. He was drafted by the Dodgers. And history could have looked totally different had he stayed with the Dodgers. I mean, can you imagine a team with Roberto, Jackie, Pee Wee, Campy, Hodges, Duke, Koufax, Drysdale? I mean, that team would have been lights out. And they probably would have made life difficult for the Yankees in a couple of those Octobers back then. But I digress. Unfortunately for Roberto, Montreal presented a first set of challenges in his quest to become a major leaguer. He was not a fan of the much cooler Canadian temperatures. His English was awful. And... There was a bunch of people speaking French, and he was even more lost in translation trying to converse with them. He also suffered injuries in a car accident that year, 1954, and that would affect him for the rest of his life. Now, I tried to find out some of the particulars of this car accident, and I'm going to be honest with you, if this was today and someone of Roberto Clemente's status was in a car accident... TMZ would be all over it, it'd be all over Facebook or whatever, and it's just not like that in 1954. I, 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 I really did my due diligence, and I couldn't find a lot about this car accident. So if there's any of you out there that know about this car accident, why don't you send me an, an email at backwardskpod at gmail.com. This car accident would have an effect on him for the rest of his life. And we'll talk about that down the road as well. Now, former Dodgers Hall of Famer manager uh, Tommy Lasorda was a teammate of Roberto's in Montreal. And he used to opine about how Clemente was always in the lobby waiting for Tommy. You know, Tommy's bilingual. So he can order his breakfast. And Look, to be fair, Roberto's a smart guy. He knows in order to get food, he should go to La Sorda. That meatball. Every day, every town, waiting for La Sorda in the lobby. So, after all this uh, shitty Canadian weather, no Spanish speakers, and the worst insult to Robbie is yet to come. Because, look, I don't know how else to put it. The Dodgers effed up. I mean, they really effed up. And by the time they realized they effed up, it was way too late. Let me tell you what happened. First off, the Dodgers quickly learned at camp that this Clemente kid is pretty badass. And certainly even better than Al Campanis had advertised with the straight A's across the board. 
The Dodgers figured they could throw four grand at this kid who was making $40 a week for Santursi, and everyone makes out. And, you know, I, I, I don't blame him. You know, the Dodgers are hearing these words coming in about this ball player. They're like, well, how much does he make? He makes $40 a week playing baseball right now for the, this amateur team down here. That's pretty good. Well, tell him we'll give him 4000 And, of course, he's going to jump at that contract. So, unfortunately for Brooklyn, MLB had a rule at the time that any ball player making under six grand and still playing in the minors was vulnerable to the draft. So, while the Dodgers recognized that Clemente was literally a baseball gem, they began to bury Roberto on the bench so that these rival teams wouldn't scout Roberto and steal him from their system in the draft. And when I say to you that they buried him, the Dodgers buried his ass. As Robbie grew more frustrated and anger, he began to resent the Dodgers organization. Now, fortunately for Roberto, and unfortunately for Brooklyn, I should add, Branch Rickey had become the GM for the Pittsburgh Pirates. The same Branch Rickey who had Jackie Robinson scouted and sent him to that very same Montreal Royals team back in 1947. Smashing the color line in Major League Baseball, and he basically rebuilt the Dodgers around Jackie Robinson from bums to champs. And Branch Rickey, who could care less about the color of player, he's singularly focused on how to win pennants. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously, Mr. Ricky is one of the progressive, innovative minds in MLB history. And in my book, I think he might be the greatest GM of all time. Certainly top three of all time to this day. And there's going to come a time when I do a huge breakdown on Branch Rickey and collect his story here on Backwards K, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. So where was I? Okay. Back to Robbie. He's being buried on the bench, sometimes maybe getting three ABs in two weeks. Not because he's a stiff, but because he's a hidden gem. And the Dodgers lowballed him at four grand, and now he is vulnerable to the draft. Enter Branch Rickey, new GM for Pittsburgh. And folks, Branch Rickey knows the lay of the land in Montreal, as well as the nooks and crannies out of the Dodgers minor league system. He built it. So, he sends his most trusted scout, Clyde Soupforth, to Montreal. The Dodgers have uh, this pitcher, Joe Black, and he's a bonus baby. And the Pirates are most likely, they're going to snatch up Joe Black with that number one pick in the upcoming draft. And upon his arrival in Montreal to scout Joe Black, Sueforth managed to sneak into the stadium without introducing himself to anyone in the Dodgers. And at that point, the mission completely changes. He saw Clemente hit opposite field rope after opposite field rope. 
And after one of these missiles hit the outfield wall with a thud, he saw that youngster take off and run out a double like his hair was on fire. And the whole time, Soupforth was sitting there and he's becoming intrigued with this Clemente kid. But what he saw next made him totally forget about Joe Black. Roberto's out there in the outfield. He's gracefully covering ground. He's snatching gappers that would have been doubles. So the coach fumbles a ball off the right field wall. And Clemente, with those long fingers and strong Olympic javelin wrist, he unloads an absolute P to third base on the fly. And Superworth never saw a throw like that in his life. Like I said, the mission completely changed. And once Superworth made his formal introduction to the Dodgers and how he'd come to look at Joe Black, but how impressed he was with the Clemente kid, the vibe changed. The Dodgers did everything they could do to hide him from the Pirates. They scheduled his batting pit practices early in the morning so he would hit with the pitchers. They had guys like uh, Meatball Lasorda on the lookout for Pirate staff. And if Tommy got a whiff, they would pull Roberto from drills and outfield work. Sukforth knew he was on to something. It got to the point where they never played him at games he attended. So one game, Lasorda, he saw Clyde in the stands, and he snitched to the manager. And the manager promptly pitched hit for him in the bottom of the first. So, the frustrated Sukforth is staring in the dugout at the frustrated Clemente, and he made up his mind right there. He approaches the Dodgers, brass, after the game, and he basically puts them on notice. I don't care if you never play the kid again. We stink. We're in last place. And we're going to have the number one pick. And with that pick, we're taking Bob Clemente. And in 1955, just as Sukforth prophesied, the Pirates selected Bob Clemente with the first pick of the draft. Now, as much of a culture shock, shock as Montreal was, nothing prepared Roberto for Pirate Spring Training in 1955, Fort Myers, Florida. Clemente quickly learned he had two strikes against him. One, he was black. Two, he was Spanish in Jim Crow, Florida. And he realized that he comes from a more racially evolved country than the United States, even though they are part of the United States. But in Puerto Rico, the Negro League players can stay at the same hotels as white major leaguers. In Puerto Rico, you can sit anywhere you want on a bus. In Puerto Rico, there are no segregated restaurant booths, no segregated counters. You sit where you want to sit and you eat. He found a lot of the white players to be standoffish. They looked at Robbie as an oddity. A lot of the guys had no idea where Puerto Rico was even at. The black players, they didn't gravitate to him because like the white players, they too looked at him as an oddity. Certainly not as a peer. 
And by his own admission, years later, Roberto would recount that he may have acted very immature his first few years with Pittsburgh. He admits, I was brash, I was arrogant, I could have been a better teammate, a better leader. I wasn't ready. I was confused, and I was still learning. And he resented that the white ball players could leave the park and go eat and socialize together, especially on the road and, you know, the South, and just leave them with no care. Well, all right, see you later, Roberto. He resented that the black players hadn't formed this brotherhood with them because he was from a different culture and spoke a different language. He certainly resented the media because they treated him like an ignorant peasant. I mean, all things being fair. For example, Roberto in his broken English tried to assimilate to America's ways. He would tell a writer, today I hit the ball very well. But these ignorant little shits would quote his broken English in print. Like, they would print it like this. Today I heat the ball very well. They made him sound like a fucking moron. Meanwhile, he had white teammates who never graduated high school, who spoke horrible English as well, but the printed quotes that they always had, they were always pristine, always cleaned up. And early in his career, because of these frustrations, he developed a selfish mindset. And he was all about showing the world his greatness in spite of everybody else. Now, the first seven weeks, he wore the number 13. His teammate Earl Smith wore number 21. I never knew that. Uh, just the thought, again, butterfly, butterfly effect moment. Just the thought of wearing, Roberto wearing anything but 21, it seems so foreign to me. Especially the number unlucky 13. 13? That's a terrible number. You know, imagine if that 21-foot wall in PNC Park, which is there in commemoration for Roberto Clemente, imagine if it was 13 feet tall. It just doesn't sound right. His rookie year, 1955, Roberto played in 124 games with 501 plate appearances. He scored 48 runs, drove in 47, 121 hits, 11 triple, with a 255, 284, 382 slash, and a 77 OPS plus. So, he's hardly setting the world on fire, but Clemente had arrived, and his dream of being a Major League Baseball player had been realized. In his second year, 1956, he did it a little better. 311, 330, 431, and 572 plate appearances. He had 169 hits, but his power and his run production numbers were still relatively low. 66 runs, 7 home runs, 60 RBI. 1957 brought much of the same. Solid ball player, pedestrian run production numbers. But in 1958, Roberto begins to change his attitude, his mindset. He begins to mature. The team starts getting better. 
And in the 1958-59 offseason, Roberto makes his first big, impactful decision in his major league career, in my opinion. During that offseason, he joined the United States Marine Corps. Uh, the man who had been treated like a third world subhuman decided to put it on the line for his country. He completed boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina, and he would serve as a reservist in Jacksonville, North Carolina at Camp Lejeune until 1964. And the military service did his body right. He was now growing into a man. And now Clemente had discipline and perspective. And he also learned how to speak up for himself when he felt it necessary. In 1960, the Pirates had picked themselves up from the perennial last place finishes to finally win an NL pennant. They were under the steady managerial hand of Danny Murtaugh, guided by players like Roberto, uh, Bill Mazeroski, Dick Grote, Bill Verdon, Bob Friend, Vern Lawn, Vern Law. The Buckos would upset the heavily favored Yankees in the World Series in seven games. That World Series is most remembered for the World Series clinching home run by second baseman Bill Mazeroski. But Clemente was brilliant in that series, getting at least one hit in every game of the series, pacing the Pittsburgh offense with nine hits and a 3.11 average. Most fans forget it was Roberto's clutch opposite field single in the bottom of the eighth that drove in the tying run in Bill Verdon, setting up one of the most exciting opportunities in baseball history for Bill Mazeroski. And while his teammates popped champagne and celebrated their world championship in the clubhouse, Roberto quickly dressed and left Forbes Field to party in the streets with the amassing Pirates fans. The same fans who only five years before viewed him as this oddity, they now saw Roberto as family. And it all came together that season for Robbie. He won a chip. He made the all-star team, finished the regular season with a 314, 357, 458 slash, 16 home runs, 94 RBI, 89 runs, and a 121 OPS+. And the offseason of 1960 did bring a little turbulence and drama. Teammate Dick Grote won the MVP with four other Pirates sprinkled in the top 10. Clemente came in eighth. And a fiercely prideful Clemente, he basically called BS on the media who was always treating him unfairly in his eyes. And look, if you're, you, can, you can push pause right here. If you are basing it on strictly stats, Clemente does have the better stat line. It's comparable, but Clemente's is better. I would suggest you go to baseball reference and come to your own conclusion. Put the 1960 season for Dick Grote up against the 1960 season for Roberto Clemente, and you make your own choice. Come to your own conclusion. My conclusion is Clemente had better stats. 
The media turned it into Clemente versus Grote, teammate versus teammate. But Roberto and Grote agreed throughout their lives that they never once had crosswords with one another over that damn award. Clemente's frustration was being voted eighth. Not the fact that his teammate won, the fact that you put seven dudes in front of him. Fiercely prideful man. Now, folks, I need to do a slight transition here because Roberto is like this true tragic hero. And all tragic hero stories are written in three acts, story arcs. I mean, that's going all, all the way back to Aristotle, baby. And I would say the second act of Roberto Clemente's life begins in 1960 and runs through 1970. By 1960, Robbie has asserted, asserted himself as uh, one of the best players of his era. He has made his first All-Star appearance his previous five years. He showed he had the tools, but now the fans in Pittsburgh, they had his back. And he would dominate the 60s, playing in 10 Midsummer Classics during the decade earning nine gold gloves, three more in 70, 71, and 72 for 12 in a row. He won four NL batting titles during the 60s. 1961, 64, 65, and 67. He not only won the NL MVP in 1966, but he also won the All-Star MVP that same year. Uh, back then in the All-Star game, they played two games. And it was Roberto's clutch hit in game one at Chavez Ravine that would drive him Willie Mays for the walk-off win for the National League. And even though Clemente had won that ring in the 1960 World Series, he was always most proud of a 66 All-Star MVP ring. It was the only ring, baseball ring, he would wear until his death. In Clemente's mind, that ring represented the long-awaited validation and acceptance of his greatness among his peers. And as great as he was on the field, Clemente was always overlooked. The writers would fawn over big market stars like Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays, and even Cubs stars Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, uh, Milwaukee, Hank Aaron, all these guys seem more beloved by the press. And it did. It made Clemente seed. I mean, when you're the best player of the decade, well, why is everybody looking over, over top of you? And during the 1960s, Roberto became more outspoken about his Puerto Rican pride. For years, the press tried to Americanize Roberto. They tried to change him into a Bob. And Clemente would have none of that. I mean, you can look at the early baseball cards and many teammates called him Bob, but he would correct them. He would stop them, look them in the eye and say, hey, my name's Roberto. And he would become an advocate for Latin ball players who were quite honestly being treated even worse than black ball players at the time. He would become the voice of Latin players in the league. And some members of the media 
They didn't know how to react to him. Most Latin players were subservient and quiet. Not Clemente. A writer asked Clemente once, who was better, you or Willie Mays? And Roberto, with his confidence voice, said, for me, when I put on my jersey, I'm the best baseball player in the game. Well, the next day, the newspaper headline read, Clemente says he's better than Willie Mays. And that's what he hated. The media was always twisting his words. That's not what he's saying. It's very simple. It's a different culture. It's a different background. When I go to my friend, Jorge Huertas, and I say, uh, yo, who's the best drafter in our league? He'll tell me, for me, it's me. I'm the best. He's not trying to be arrogant by saying it. He's just saying, I'm the best. It's a totally different culture. One media member put out a magazine that had a picture of Clemente on the front page and had PowerPoints of all the injuries Roberto had complained of during his career. And they tried to make him out to be this petulant uh, hypochondriac. Forget the fact that he is uh, top shelf liquor, winning battle titles, all-star bids, gold gloves, with a body that's never been the same since that car accident in 54. And still these writers still write their stories. Roberto never complains. His honesty was lost in translation. It's the same thing I was just saying about who's the best. In America, we do this thing where we say, uh, how are you? Well, I'm saying it to you as a greeting, as a salutation. I don't really care how you are. I'm saying it like, how are you? What's up? Hi. Roberto didn't consider this a greeting. Puerto Ricans don't consider that a greeting. If you ask him how it was, he's going to answer you honestly. Well, look, my, my, my knee kind of hurts. My back's a little achy today. I, you know, I had that car accident back in 54. And people just did not understand that back then. He's not saying he's not going to play today. He's just saying, hey, man, you asked me how I am. I'm telling you, I'm a little banged up. In the 50s and the 60s, the Latin player was trained to keep his mouth shut. But Roberto broke that model. I mean, Latin players couldn't tell their coaches they were hurt. That's not how it worked. You know, and Roberto was the first one. Now, nah, man, I'm going to say it. And he became a leader in the conscience of the Latin player and the Latin fan. And he would also become like this sort of human philanthropist. He'd go home to Puerto Rico in the off-season, run these baseball clinics on the island for our kids. And Roberto became a fan of the, the poor workers of Puerto Rico. Roberto Clemente, throughout his life period, it seems, spoke to poor people, spoke to impoverished people. He never forgot where he came from, two cents a day, hauling milk throughout the barrio. And he didn't really care what you thought about that. That's who he cared about. Those were his people. And, you know, he was without question king of, king of the island, king of Puerto Rico. So in 1964, Roberto marries Vera Sabala. And it was pretty much the Puerto Rican rendition of a royal wedding. The most popular person on the island marrying the hottest chick on the island. And just as joining the military in 1958 changed Robbie for the better, I would think that so does his marriage right here to Vera.
Now, America is going through a civil rights reckoning itself in the 60s. Roberto befriends Dr. Martin Luther King. He had the utmost respect for the good doctor and took it upon himself as the first Latin superstar of baseball to lift his own people out of obscurity and become even more and he became even more outspoken. Roberto was clearly the best right fielder of the baseball at this time. It wasn't even close. And unfortunately, he still wasn't respected as such. And by 1969, you know, his mortal cord here, unknown to anyone but us, the audience now, it's got a three-year shelf life. And as Clemente walks through the door to the third act of his life, he would have one more opportunity to show the world his greatness. And the 1971 World Series would be his stage. The 1971 Pirates, they were a very good team. They went 97 and 65. They won the NL East and eventually the National League pennant. Their offense was buoyed by players like Manny Sanguian, Al Oliver, Willie Stargell, and of course Roberto. But the Pirates went into the 71 World Series as huge underdogs to the American League champion Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles had 420 game winning pitchers. And Jim Palmer, Dave McNally, Mike Cuellar, Pat Dobson. And they were heavily favored. Now, when the Orioles took the first two games of the series, Aussie lost. It looked like this series was going to run the script. But Clemente, behind closed doors at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, he went off on his teammates. And he told them, this series is not over. And the Buccos, we're going to win all three games when we get back to Pittsburgh. And Clemente's words proved to be prophetic as the Pirates did sweep Baltimore at Three Rivers Stadium. He also led by example. I mean, as Roberto was putting on one of the most spectacular showings in World Series history. I mean, you put it right up there with Reggie Jackson. And for a lot of you young kids, what, what Randy Rose Arena has been doing the last couple of years with Tampa but, I mean, Clemente was just a man on a mission. He picked up a hit and at least, he picked up at least one hit in all seven games, just as he had done in 1960. That gives him a 14 World Series game hitting streak, which I believe is a record today. I could be wrong. You can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. I mean, he did everything during the season. He ran the bases with reckless abandon. He unleashed that rocket launcher of, his, of an arm. And basically, it was a warning to the Orioles. Uh-uh-uh-uh. You, you, you don't get an extra 90 feet off of this hose, baby. He's dropping dong. The dong he drops in Game 7 would be the series-winning RBI. And the record shows that Pittsburgh dismantled Baltimore in seven games. And they were led to that championship by the one and only great one out in right field. There were people at that time who was the better right fielder, Frank Robinson or Roberto Clemente. And Clemente smashed that thought right there. Now, I love Frank, but Roberto smashed that thought. 
Jim Potter once said the greatest hitter he ever faced was Roberto Clemente. No one hits 400 versus our 1971 staff. No one. No one but Roberto Clemente. Even Hall of Fame Orioles announcer Chuck Thompson was forced to admit that he had never seen a ball player in his life like Clemente. And it was an honor to witness it. Pittsburgh won the series four games to three. And instead of parting with the fans like he did in 1960, Clemente relishes the championship with his teammates in the bowels of Memorial Stadium. In 1960, Clemente was a misunderstood talent. In 1971, he was the team leader and the best baseball player in the biz. The baseball universe could no longer deny the man. He put his stamp on that 1971 World Series. And it seemed like Clemente had enough in the tank and the Buccos had the talent to maybe win one more in the next three years. In 1972, though, Robbie struggles through injuries. He bats 312 in 102 games. He made his 12th All-Star team, and he won his 12th Gold Glove Award. On September 30th, he hit a double off Mets pitcher John Matlack for his 3,000 hit in his last Major League regular season at bat. But the Pirates, you know, they were good. They finished 96-59, first place in the NL East, but they lost in the NLCS three games to two versus the Cincinnati Reds. This is like the rise of the big red machine coming. And the baseball world would never see Roberto Clemente play baseball again. Because shortly after the 1972 season, on Christmas Day, well, backtrack a little bit. Clemente, uh, he started going to Nicaragua to coach kids and spread the gospel of baseball, and he winded up falling in love with Nicaragua. Well, on Christmas Day, Nicaragua was rocked by an earthquake, 6.3 on a Richter scale. It laid the city of Managua under rubble, death. And Roberto, who had befriended this nation's children, he decided he was going to send supplies to the grief-stricken nation. Unfortunately, the corrupt government was stealing those very same supplies and selling them to the rich people on the island. And Clemente, always a leader and a supporter of poor people, was appalled by this. And he chartered himself a plane to take his donations to them personally. Now, I'm not going to go in-depth about the particulars of the plane and the pilot. I think that is a show on its own. I'm going to do that at some point, so stay tuned on that. But I will say this. The whole affair was sketchy. The plane was a veritable shitbox that should have never been in the air. And the pilot was grossly negligent. And I'm going to tell you, it's a whole other 45-minute show, honestly. What we've learned since that plane crash, it's appalling, and it's disgraceful. 
And I'm sure I'll have another show on that sometime down the road. So, the plane takes off and literally about two minutes in the air, disaster strikes. And the plane crashes just a couple miles off the beach of Isla Verde, killing everyone on board. And the only body ever found in the wreckage was the owner. And that's it. That's the moment the whole baseball world stood still. And while his teammates attended his funeral, Manny Sanguian spent his day diving in the Atlantic Ocean looking for his best friend and his mentor. Some say Roberto was like this hypochondriac, he was arrogant, brash, hard-headed, and there may be some truth about all those things. He was flawed, but in so many ways, he was subtle, and he was perfect. He was a complex man who lived in a complex time in a racially complex country. It took his death for him to become a hero. All of his great play on the field, he couldn't do it, but this right here, this is like the stuff of legends. It took the 1971 World Series for the baseball world to recognize his greatness, and it took his death for the world to recognize what a hero he was. And really, this show could go on forever. But I think I'm going to end it here. Uh, I will have a show in the future about specifically the the plane crash. But there are plenty of books and research material and YouTube out there. I implore you, I beg you to research this man and find out all you can find out about the great Roberto Clemente. Now, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame posthumously in 1973. He didn't have to wait the five-year wait period. Uh, He got him with a 92.7% of the vote. And I got to tell you, um, with all apologies to Mo Rivera, Clemente should have been the first unanimous induction. The week he hit 3,000, he didn't even make the cover of Sports Illustrated. Now, that was given to Joe Namath. For God's sakes. In 1999, he was not chosen for the All-Century team, which just proves to me that fans should not vote for these type of honors. I'm going to tell you right now, I would have put him over Pete Rose for sure, who was banned from baseball. I, I mean, look, you can have the player who thought he was above the rules, and I'll take the guy who gave up everything to give everything. Period. And Ken Griffey Jr. was barely in the league 10 years. Barely in the league 10 years, and they put him on that team over Roberto. And it turns out that Jr. wasn't even the best outfielder of his generation in the end. We all know that now. The Pirates retired his number. Their right field wall in PNC Park, like I mentioned earlier, is 21 feet high to commemorate him. Uh, There is the Tom Walker story 
I know a lot of people in Pittsburgh know this story. Maybe some of you don't. Tom Walker was a relief pitcher for the Montreal Expos. He had come to Pittsburgh in some kind of deal. And he had befriended Roberto Clemente. Now, when he heard about this earthquake, he went to Roberto and he said, Roberto, I want to come help you. I want to help you uh, hand out stuff and, and help these people. And Roberto looked at the young kid and he said, No, nah, man, you're young, you're single, go out, enjoy yourself, man. It's New Year's, go party. When I come back, I'll, I'll get out with you. And little did Tom Walker know he would never see his, his friend again. Well, flash forward, Tom Walker settles down in Pittsburgh, marries the love of his life. They have a, they have a boy, and his name is Neil. And Neil Walker winds up playing second base for the Pittsburgh Pirates for seven years. I mean, that's crazy. That's amazing. He's had his own stamp. Uh, the Sixth Street Bridge in Pittsburgh, it's renamed Roberto Clemente Bridge. They considered naming the uh, stadium after him, but they would eventually say, sell those naming rights to the stadium to uh, PNC Financial Service, and the bridge was renamed as a compromise. They got a stadium in Puerto Rico named after him. They have a stadium named after him in Nicaragua. They have a park in the Bronx named after him. Uh, they've named schools after him in places like Orlando, Florida, Allentown, Pennsylvania, Chicago. I mean, there is so much to learn about the man. I'm going to give you his final stats. And then we're going to break it all out of here. But uh, what an amazing person. What an amazing person. Now, Roberto's final stat line. He had a 94.8 war. Only Hank and Willie were better in his era. 1,416 runs, 3,000 hits. That's the bar. That's the bar, baby, and I love that. You know, to be in that 3,000-hit pantheon, you have to match at least Roberto Clemente. He is the bar. He is the standard. 440 doubles. His 166 triples are the most by a player post-World War II. 240 home runs, 1,305 RBI, and then a 317, 359, 475 slash. A 130 OPS plus. See, there you have it, folks. The first show in the books. The man, the myth, the legend, the great one, the iconic, Roberto Clemente. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I can't wait to get another show to you. I think the next show is going to be on the Baseball Bunch. Famous baseball TV show. Used to come on the 80s. I'm going to tell you all about it. But look, that's another story for another pod. If you want to reach out to me, you can come into the uh, Facebook Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Uh, we're building the Twitter page now. I got a website under uh, construction. I got a lot of stuff coming your way. I don't want to bog you down with all this. But I'm glad that you joined me here. I hope you love the show. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored, by all means, take him outside and play a game of catch. 
Thank you all for coming out. God bless and good night.